Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, December 23rd, 2015. This will be our last episode of the year 2015. A little bit of an augmented program today. Gonna do a few emails. Yeah, I have one of those headaches that basically is signaling to me I've got a flu or a really bad head cold on a, on the way. I'm not happy about it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage, really crazy, bizarre, non-biblical, just-made-up Things said by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose materials we need to be studying instead of the Bible during our small group Bible studies. Uh, We test to see what they're saying, to see if it actually squares with what God's Word says to see if these people are actually teaching sound biblical doctrine, you know, historic Christian Orthodox doctrine, you know, that kind of stuff, or if they're making stuff up and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. That's a bad thing to be doing. And over and again, we find that uh, what's being said out there just isn't measuring up. It's not actually squaring with what God's Word says. So, like I said at the beginning of the program, I I am <clears throat> I've got one of those headaches, and it's, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those headaches when you you, you feel it, you sit there and go, uh oh, I know what that headache is. Yeah, oh, I'm not excited about this because that means I'm going to spend part of my time off <laughs> recovering from some kind of a, you know either a flu or a head cold or something like that. It's this is, I'm just like in the early phases and. I'm already somewhat in a fog, and I'm, like I said, not happy about it. So uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to do a few emails, and uh, then we are going to uh, listen to a few good sermons, a few good Christmas sermons. We're going to listen to a good sermon from Pastor Ron Hodel, a good sermon from Brent Kuhlman, and a good Christmas sermon from Jeremy Rohde to uh, end the year off. And the... um, I was listening to the Brent Kuhlman one just a few minutes before coming on the air. And I got to tell you, you it's uh, Brent Kuhlman, I think, is a living day John the Baptist. I mean, he just says things the way they are. 
and uh, he deals with some of the um, thornier issues regarding the incarnation of Christ, something to be considered, too, by the way. And uh, so you, know, you may have never heard a Christmas sermon preached quite like the way Brent Kuhlman's going to preach it, but he's going to land on his feet and properly distinguish between law and gospel. He's going to correctly uh, preach and teach regarding the incarnation and what it's all about. So, yeah, we got some good stuff to look forward to. And then just to kind of spice things up, uh, today over at the Museum of Idolatry, uh, Stephen Kozar put up a uh, <laughs> a fascinating uh, exhibit, if you would. And the name of the exhibit is The Battle of the Crazy Gigantic Extreme Christmas Spectacles. And um, and there's an important question asked there. And so he's it literally, we got video inserted into this uh Exhibit and um, the important question is at, that is asked is: Do these uber expensive spectacles help the church fulfill the Great Commission, or are they signs of the decadence and corruption of evangelicalism? Yeah, and I think we're, it's worth considering. And so you, you know, we've got video footage of the uh, Christmas extravaganza from Prestonwood Baptist. Uh, we've got twisted the musical from. I think C3 out there in San Diego, uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church, their big <laughs> Christmas extravaganza, uh, and uh, flying drummers from Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. You know, we got Flo- the Fort Lauderdale Christmas pageant. And uh, to end things off, they've got a snippet of um, John Hagee. Yeah, John Hagee of uh, Four Blood Moons uh, fame. From this year's 2015 Christmas concert and pageant down there in uh, in Austin, and um, Hagee sings lounge lizard style, if you would. Um, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, which I think kind of proves that he's an entertainer. But he even has a a, a, a saxophone solo in the in the midst of it, which is you know utterly fascinating to me on so many different levels. I mean. When you look at the production value of the stage and what went into this Christmas production, I mean, just thinking about the, you know, how much money it w- would have cost to pull something like that off, Broadway style, and uh, and then John Hagee singing. I thought what we would uh, do to kind of start things off is uh, is to listen to John Hagee uh, singing "I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas" because yeah, you know that's one of those. Uh, really spiritual Christmas hymns, you know, and, you know, that just gives all the glory to Christ. And uh, let's, and, you know, we'll even listen through uh, his saxophone solo. Yeah, here's um, a snippet of the um, 2015 Christmas concert uh, out there at uh, John Hagee's church. Here we go. He's got a really good backup band, and they paid a lot for these musicians, I'm telling you. And here comes John Hagee with a swag on. Just like the ones I used to know where the truth is, is it me or is he flat? I think he's flat. 
Time is uh, they quickly run and grab his saxophone. Clearly, he plays the saxophone better than he sings. I just see dollar signs all over the place on this stage. Yeah, I think of all the missionaries that aren't being sent to the mission field to proclaim the gospel of Christ because of all the money spent on all these Christmas pageants. Talking in the millions here. The church is too busy entertaining itself to, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations. It's just utter decadence. I mean, I don't mind if NBC does it, but places that call themselves churches... Christmas Lounge Lizard session. Yeah, not sure what to make of all of the money being spent on these huge Christmas spectacles. Uh, it, it just seems to me like we're uh, suffering from great commission creep. Yeah, great commission creep. Yeah, we're too, way too busy you know, spending our money and our tithe money to make sure we've got a good show. Great production value, amazing stage, jumbotrons, and even saxophone soloing pastors yeah yeah the job that we've been given is to make disciples of all nations baptizing and teaching all the christ is commanded yeah i just <clears throat> see this kind of stuff as like totally being way way off mission moving along do a little email 
back this up. We're like I said, we're going to do an augmented email segment just because my head is a little bit cloudy. All right, first email comes to us from John in Lakeland, Florida, and John asks a good question. John writes, he says, uh, Pastor Rosebro, when you teach the Bible, you bring out a lot of behind-the-scenes things going on that help make the text understandable. One such example is your interview on issues, etc., on John 9 in reference to the Pharisees, who they were, as well as the blind man, the clay, and the water, and the pool, these are only examples of bigger of of a bigger picture of my question. How does a Christian go about getting educated on these things to see the fuller picture? I don't recall anyone ever teaching even this passage with the information you have given, and it astounded me to the extent that I was embarrassed inside for uh, now see these things uh, for not seeing these things before. I hope this question makes sense. How do I go about understanding the backstories into what I am reading so that I can better understand the text? John, I, I'm going to give you what seems like a simple answer, um, but it's as complicated as they get. What, you're, what I'm able to do when I teach like that is the result of a lifelong study of God's Word. And uh, from teaching it for many decades, and uh, the in 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 reality, and I mean this, the vast majority of the information that I'm getting on Scripture is from the Scriptures themselves. If you really want to teach the Bible well, you must know the Bible well, and that means reading through it regularly, teaching through it regularly, and. John, I, I don't. I'm not sure what your status is as far as whether you're married, have children, and things like that. But if you're married and you have children that are living in the house, they're they're not grown up. Um, then a good place to start to learn these things is by teaching your family the Bible, and literally start at Genesis and work your way through, and and you know, and find a dedicated time that you're you're teaching the Bible to your family daily. And what you'll find is the more you understand the scriptures and you understand it by reading it and as well as teaching it and, and explaining it to others is that you begin to have a, you know, kind of a good mental concept of what's going on in the biblical texts. And then um, that gives you really the necessary information. For instance, in my interview on issues, etc., one of the things I pointed out is that the Pharisees didn't have any biblical office, that you know, they, they were literally usurpers, and you know, that's what Jesus was getting at in there. And you know, the question is, how do you find such things out? Well, quite frankly, it's it's a it's about paying attention to the details of the Old Testament and what God has established there. And it's not a coincidence that you know when you leave off with the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament, there were no Pharisees mentioned at all. Pharisees cl- literally came up and you know you know appeared on the scene during the intertestamental period. And so when you see things like that, you have to ask yourself the question: Who are these people? Where do they come from? Why are they saying the things that they're saying? And uh, and so if if you are familiar with what's going on in the new in the Old Testament. Uh, you know the history of Israel, the history of the prophets, the history of of the exile, and what happened immediately after Israel's brought back from exile, 
and how what you know what what was the state of Israel when we last left off in the book of Malachi and then you 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 understand there's a 400 year period of silence and then you have the preaching of John the Baptist and uh, and so in the interim s- clearly something has happened and there's things that are different and so when you see things like that, you have to ask yourself the question, who are these people? Where do they come from? By what authority are they saying and doing the things that they're saying and doing? And so um, the Bible really gives you all that you really need to get all this. And the nice thing then is also as, you know, as a student of Scripture, what you also want to do is you want to see how... Christians have handled these texts and and connected the biblical dots, if you would, um, you know, throughout the millennia. And so one of the things that, you know, I do is I read the writings of the church fathers. I read the sermons of the church fathers. I read the sermons of uh, Martin Luther and of uh, Martin Chemnitz and uh, and uh, Johann Gerhard and others. And what I what 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 happens then is is that other theologians, other Christians, and other pastors who have already walked this path, they're able to kind of show you how these different passages then work together, and you begin to fill out your your knowledge, and you become more confident that when you're seeing these connections, or you know, lack thereof, uh, that that you're not misseeing it. And so the idea here is is that become first and foremost become a student and i mean a really good student of moses of the prophets of the apostles and dig deep into this stuff learn how other people have preached on these different stories uh, outside of the 20th and 21st century look at how the church has understood these things and drawn these connections and you'll start to see and and that and that's really kind of the idea. And then of course, you know, I've also read lots of books that you know that that also make these connections and see these similar things. So the idea here is is that you know the long and the short of it is the 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 greatest way to learn how to do this is by reading your Bible. That's foundation. That's key. That's center. And then look at how others have handled these texts and drawn the connections. Because for me, you know, when I'm reading in the church fathers, when I see one church, when I see a church father make a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I'm paying attention and 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 really looking at how they're drawing those connections and and filling in the data. And so that that's kind of the idea. All right, next email comes to us from Rob and Heather in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, Rob writes, he says. Um, my wife and I have been discussing Paul's use of scripture in a couple of instances. He misquotes and they put that in, uh, in quotes, old Testament scripture. One example is Romans eleven twenty six, and, uh, which says, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverance will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. My Bible reference, uh, references Isaiah 59, 20, which reads, and the redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Another is Ephesians 4, 8, and Psalm 68, 10. There are a couple more that we found, and we did look at some commentaries and found some to say that it was common practice for teachers of the day to use Scripture to change it for a different reason or point. I have no idea if this is true. 
I also read that Paul is looking at scriptures through the gospel and changing the scriptures because of that. I really don't uh, know, but in context, Paul's quotes seem to say the opposite of the Old Testament scripture. Any help would be appreciated. All right, Rob and Heather, um, number one, uh, you, we're going to, a couple of things you have to keep in mind when reading the Apostle Paul and how he's quoting scripture. Number one, he may be quoting from the Septuagint, all right, um, which is an important, you know, which is an important thing to kind of understand. So he's quoting from a translation. That may be part of it. But the, I mean, the more important and foundational thing is this, is that even the Apostle Peter in Second Peter is saying and affirms that the Apostle Paul is one who is writing Scripture, and he's writing it under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And so the real simple way to understand the Apostle Paul in his handling of Old Testament texts and quotes is quite simply this, that what Paul is giving us is the true sense of what that passage is really about. And he's doing this under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And so if you were to think of it this way, this is, you know, Paul's quotations of the Old Testament are the Holy Spirit teaching us to rightly understand what it is these passages truly mean and what they're about. And uh, since he's an, an inspired apostle, you know, he's capable of doing things that no exegete is even capable of doing today. And so he's kind of he has a little bit of an inside track, and so I know that seems kind of like you know uh, you know it might be a cop out, but it's no cop out at all. And so the idea is is you know I've kind of wrestled with these things myself and other uh, dogmaticians. For instance, uh, the uh, the famous uh, Lutheran dogmatician uh, uh, Francis Pieper, he actually de- dedicates a little bit of ink to this topic him, uh, himself in his uh, Christian dogmatics. And he notes the fact that the Apostle Paul is doing what he is doing with these texts under the inspiration of the Scripture. And, you know, as as Christians, we then, in a sense, really bow the knee and say, listen, when the Holy Spirit is teaching us what these passages are really about, we, we don't sit there and say, Paul's a goofball, and, and, what is, and, and begin to question him. Instead, we, we recognize that as an apostle, he is writing scripture. He's doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we are wise to pay attention then to how the Spirit is teaching us to handle these texts and go back and read them through the lens of the New Testament interpretation given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And again, when you do that, you'll actually begin to see then how we are to handle not only the passages that the Apostle Paul uh, is uh, handling via the Holy Spirit, but also others as well. Next email, Moises from uh, Los Angeles, California writes, he says, Hi, Pastor Chris, I I keep hearing you talk about the office of apostle being closed and a a requirement for being an apostle prerequisite is to have spent time with Jesus. Why then are others in the Bible also called apostles? Apollos, Timothy, Barnabas, maybe. Um, And I'm also trying to find a lecture. I don't know if I've heard it on your podcast or elsewhere on the various Jesus's heresies. That was uh, the uh, the second second question. The various Jesus's. That was Matt Richards' uh, lecture from the uh, uh, the Reformation uh, Road to Reformation conference. We played the audio from that. 
All right, real quick, um, here's the idea. This is a question that comes up frequently. Uh, how are we to understand other apostles other than uh, the, uh, you know, like the, you know, the 12, okay? And well, well first and foremost, we're going to look at the qualifications for an apostle, and we'll note some of the exceptions then how they get chosen. So here's the idea is uh, when we look at the, uh, upon, uh, the office of apostle, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 15. And here's what it says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 100, 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And um, and fell and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And he became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akadalma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, "May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is uh, is quoting. Psalm 69, verse 25, as well as Psalm 109, verse 8, and noting the fact that Scripture has to be fulfilled and that Scripture calls for the office of apostle vacated by uh, Judas to actually be filled. And here's what it says. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen and uh, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they cast lots for them, and, they, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here's the idea. The apostles recognized that apostleship was an office. They had a vacant office, had to be filled according to Scripture, and there were qualifications. You have to have been, you know, there you know, for Jesus' teaching and ministry. You have to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. And then not even Peter and the other apostles made the decision as to who would fill the vacant office of apostle. Instead, that office had to be filled by Jesus, and Jesus filled that vacant office you know, by use of lots. That's how that went. So not even the apostles dared to you know, say, oh, we choose you. An apostle has to be chosen by Christ. And so the idea then is, is that there are other apostles. You can kind of think of it this way, is that there uh that there are other apostles mentioned in scripture and uh you know and you you mentioned Barnabas Paul is also an apostle and and yet Paul's apostleship is was constantly challenged and let's take a look at that uh 1 Corinthians 15 we're going to start at verse 1 read that passage and look at what Paul says about his apostleships now I would remind you brothers 
of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So even the Apostle Paul, note, he says that he was one untimely born. He is an eyewitness to the resurrection. And he was chosen specifically by Christ to be an apostle. Now, so here's the idea. You can think of the 12 apostles as much the same way in the United States. We think of the 13 original states of the United States. There you know here in the United States there were only 13 to begin with the original colonies and they made up then the original states within the United States once the United States won its um its freedom from uh the uh, the, the British Empire. But now there are 50 states. So you can think of it this way. We, we note in the in the time of the apostles, this would be also Peter and others that there were others who were called apostles who were called specifically by Christ and placed into the apostolic office. And they too are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And although they're not part of the 12, they, you know, these were men who were chosen by Christ for apostleship. And since, you know, the end of the first century and the death of the apostles, there have not been any other apostles. There's no, Christ has not chosen anyone to fill that office at all. And part of apostleship also included the authority to write what was considered scripture. I made note of the fact uh, earlier in the program that uh, even Peter in Second Peter, you know, emphatically claims that Paul's writings are scripture. And so, you know, along with the authority of, uh, of the apostolic office, as well as the requirements, you have to be chosen by Christ for this, comes the ability to authoritatively speak, you know, uh, and what your words are then are the words of God himself. And so this is a, a, an important office, and it's significant to, to note that after the death of the apostles, no one in the church claimed apostleship. Um, even the greatest defenders of the Christian faith, you think of Augustine and Irenaeus, uh, you think of Ignatius, you think of Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, um, you know, Athanasius of Alexandria himself, none of these men dared call themselves apostles. Um, even though in the, uh, in the Greek language, apostle can have a very narrow meaning as well as a wide meaning. A, a, a wide meaning could be like somebody who is an official steward or you know somebody who is sent who is a legal representative. You can talk about an apostle in that sense. You know, I, I'm sending somebody who is my emissary and he has the authority given by me to conduct and do business in my name. And uh, and I've read some scholars when you know, when you talk about some of the other apostles mentioned uh, in the New Testament, 
they will argue that uh, that the uh, the word apostle used in reference to them is probably more likely referring to a kind of a broader sense as they were emissaries of the church. In fact, um, there, there some scholars actually argue there's a difference between somebody who claims to be a po- an apostle of Jesus and somebody who is an apostle of the church. An apostle of the church would be somebody who has authority given by the church to speak and conduct business in that in its name, but that does not imply that they hold the apostolic office. So the idea here is we've got to be very, very careful that uh, you know that uh, when somebody is claiming to be an apostle today and claiming that mantle of authority and the ability to speak and to act in the way that Peter did, in the way that Paul did, in the way that yeah others in the New Testament did, yeah that that office is closed. And it's absolutely closed. And if somebody's saying, "No, no, no, I'm just, I'm just somebody who's sent to go and preach the gospel. I'm an apostle in that sense," they need to stop using that term in that sense because that creates all kinds of confusion. All right, last email comes from Pastor Mike Zulo, and um, he's from Brighton. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Bridgeton, Maine, and he writes, "Hi, Pastor Roseboro, Mike, and Bridgeton, Maine here. Thank you for all that you're doing to defend what is left of Christianity." In Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. My question is, how does teaching the nations today to obey whatsoever I have commanded you differ from teaching the nations to obey the Mosaic law of the Old Testament? Um, uh, uh, Mike, you make a good, you, you ask a good question, and it's actually quite simple. And that is is that you could, in a very real way, say that uh, that the discipling of the nations is going to include teaching the full counsel of the Word of God, which is going to require you to teach what the Mosaic Covenant was, what it contained, and uh, and and how it still, you know, how the moral uh, law still informs us what a good work is and things like that. So the idea here is you, you know, and I think this is a, a good way of putting it. All things that Christ has commanded us is going to require us to teach the full counsel of the Word of God, rightly distinguishing between law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and rightly teaching uh, the historical, uh, you know, historically, the role of the Mosaic Covenant, the role of the Abrahamic Covenant, and now how the New Covenant has come and we're not, we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. It has been fulfilled. It has been, you know, it's been abrogated. It's been put aside and that we're under the New Covenant. But the, the, uh, the Old Covenant still has very important teaching value uh, for us as Christians, which is one of the reasons why it is part of the biblical canon itself. So I think the best way again to look at this, you teach the full counsel of the Word of God, and then you, you know, that includes teaching the Mosaic Covenant what it was, and uh, and you know, I would use the Book of Galatians for teaching how it has now been usurped and put away, and how we're no longer under it. I think that's the easiest way to do that. So I again, it's it's it, you know, it's quite basic. Full counsel of the Word of God, rightly distinguishing all of its different parts and uh, teaching people to understand which parts are still applicable today and which parts really have no bearing on our day-to-day conduct but do inform us about the nature of God and of good and evil and justice and things like that. I think that's the uh, the helpful way of approaching that. 
Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the year off with three good Christmas sermons. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> why we have to come to these small group sessions they're just so boring hey do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore that's quite literally what i just said then we have the product just for you new from most lobos ministries is beth moore's biblical mad libs well what is it simple Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile.
Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things Conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago, for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more information. That's higherthings.org. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. with three good Christmas sermons. This will give you the opportunity to really see what I've been driving home in the bad Christmas sermons that I've been reviewing. These Christmas sermons are about Christ and what He has done for you. They're not about you finding some dream destiny or you being pregnant with potential or any of that other kind of nonsense. But let's, uh, let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons two of them come to us from faithful lutheran church capistrano beach california one of those is preached by pastor ron hodel the next one the last one by uh, jeremy Rody. the uh, sermon in between the two is from uh, trinity lutheran church in murdoch nebraska pastor brent coolman presiding let me read the details for our first sermon. Our first sermon is entitled, Shepherds Just Doing Their Job, and it's taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. The uh, second sermon is Emmanuel, God with us. This is preached by Brent Kuhlman. He'll be preaching on Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and batting cleanup today is uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde and his sermon entitled The Meaning, taken from Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, this gives you the opportunity to, you know, basically ask the question, what is it that you were going on and on and on about? You know, why do you think those guys were wrong when they kept reading themselves into the biblical text and talking about being pregnant with potential and stuff like that? 
Well, these sermons will explain, and you're going to see the difference, and the difference is stark. These guys are preaching Christ and what he has done for you. They are not talking about your potential. You you will not be read into these texts at all. Instead, they will proclaim to you the good news of what God has given us in Christ, in a Savior. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And the first sermon is based on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, which reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from there into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. This text forms the basis of our first sermon. Here is Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon entitled, Shepherds Just Doing Their Job. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of a great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a happy night this was for the angels. Years ago... How many years ago, we don't know, only God does. But nevertheless, many years ago, the angels were grieved on the saddest of days. The day when justice demanded they drive Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. How sad it was for them to stand with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the garden. Sad duty, to be sure. But they had to do it. 
to keep fallen humankind from dooming themselves forever by eating from the tree of life and dooming us then to live forever in the land of the walking dead, guarding the entrance until the waters of the great flood graciously destroyed the garden. And ever since that time, the angels wondered, what would come of all of this? What would become of God's fallen creation? And what would come of those at its center? This fallen humankind, you and me. The word in heaven was that God had a plan. God would yet save his fallen creatures, but how? When? Where? They wanted to know. These were the things into which angels longed to look, Peter tells us. But the answer was hidden from them. Hidden until this night when the mystery of the working of God's grace unfolded in time. The angels had longed to see this day. They had waited. They had watched. Ranks of angels, the cherubim and seraphim and all of the others who had heard God revealing his plan ever so slowly through his law, through his prophets, all of the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. They watched the mystery of salvation unfold through time until on this day, they get it. They see the birth of Jesus in the flesh and they literally fall out of heaven singing for joy. Tonight, their roles reversed. Their first job, as far as we know, was to draw their flaming swords and keep humankind from storming Eden's gates. Now they sheath their swords and extend peaceful hands, inviting all the fallen Eves and every fallen Adam of this world into the paradise of Bethlehem, where they may eat of the tree of life in the flesh of Jesus Christ. But that thought jumps the story ahead 33 years to the Thursday before Good Friday, and so we'll save that story for another time. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Shepherds have a hard, nasty life. Especially these shepherds who had the most important of all the shepherdly jobs. Why in the world were these shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night? Hadn't they heard of sheep pens into which sheep and goats are gathered at night in order to keep them safe from the ravaging wolves? And of course then to give poor shepherds a few short hours of uninterrupted rest? Yes, they'd heard of sheep pens, but these shepherds weren't about to use them. Other shepherds sleep this night, but not these. These are the shepherds of the temple flocks, and they must take turns guarding the flocks that sleep in the open fields. You've heard of free-range chicken. Free-range sheep, these are. 
sheep carefully called and set aside. These sheep were the pure and undefiled lambs set apart for the temple sacrifices. God forbid they ever be crammed into sheep pens where they would sure to be marred by the bump and grind of that crowd of sheep in such a filthy place. And so the temple flock lays down in the lamb's version of the lap of luxury out in the open fields while the shepherds keep awake and alert in order to keep it just that way for these sheep. It is to these shepherds the angels appear and bid them go to Bethlehem now, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the watch, in the middle of the dangerous time, in the middle of the dark. And they pick up and leave their sheep and go even now unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto them. And they are told the sign You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They hurry to Bethlehem, to the city of David, their feet standing on the stable's floor, their eyes taking in the images before them. Why are they there? Why are they there? Why did the angels come to them of all people? Why not to ones who could actually make a difference in this world? Why not to the religious leaders? Why not to the political operatives? Why not to, well, the impressive folks, Caesars and gladiator stars, senators and generals, people, well, your kids would listen to? Why shepherds? Was it because they were the only ones available? The only ones working the night shift? No. God intended it to be this way. Shepherding has to do with sheep and lambs. The calling of these shepherds was to work with the sheep of the temple, with the lambs of God. And so if you think about it, with the coming of this child of Mary, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the temple flocks were about to be retired. And these shepherds, we're going to need to find another job. And so the shepherds go to keep watch over the Lamb of God who would soon be doing what all the sheep on all the Judean hillsides had been unable to do. The Lamb of God, asleep on the hay, will actually, totally, fully, and in real time take away the sins of the whole world. Not some of them, All of them. All of yours. All of mine. And so as they stand and see this baby, they really aren't doing anything different than they had been doing out in the fields. They are at that stable in Bethlehem keeping watch over the flock by night. Albeit the flock is only one. But what a holy one he is. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they had heard, and all that heard them wondered those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
What's Mary to make of all of this? She already knows this is a special baby. She knows the truth of his conception, even if the world doesn't want to believe it. She knows that this child born to her shall be called the Son of the Most High. She knows that he's destined for greatness. She knows that his name shall be called Jesus. But that's only part of the picture. Just as the angels had to wait and watch the plan for the world's salvation unfold from the creation onward, so also Mary had to wait and keep all of these things and ponder them in her heart. Like the angels before her, she too must watch as her unique heaven-sent Son unfolds the mystery of the ages. When children are born, they have little personalities. And just as moms see the personality of their infant child unfold, Mary too, as the shepherds leave, comes to learn the first of many more lessons about the person and work of her firstborn son. She ponders the connection between all the people, the temple shepherds, and her son. And she learns that this fact is true. Mary actually did have a little lamb. But not just any little lamb. Mary had the little lamb. The one whom John the Baptist, of whom he would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Christmas story. On the surface, the picture is not very impressive. A young girl who holds a newborn baby... Some would say there's too much of that going on anyway. No halos brighten up the stable. The strips of cloth wrapped around his tiny body are nothing spectacular. When the shepherds arrive to see what has come to pass, there are no angel choirs hidden behind the hay. No Christmas trees brightly lit. No advent wreath. No evergreen and aisle torches and sconces on the walls of the stable. It's all so plain, so, well, melancholy. It's so, well, it's so ungodlike. That's the point. On that first Christmas Eve, your eyes wouldn't have beheld the glory of Christmas. Here you have royalty disguised in poverty. Here you have the creator of the heavens and earth hidden beneath humanity. Here you have God sound asleep where animals drool. And that's good news. He's not just where the glories dwell. And if your life has lost some of its splendor, then he's, well, not to be found for you. He's not opposed to being for you and with you even in your worst of times and in the baddest of places. He may be even there in those times for you especially. He's even willing to go with you to your crosses and even into your graves. See it. Believe it. Get used to it. 
This is the way it is with God in His world. He continually calls you to the uncertainty of things not seen, to the truth which is known only to faith. You see, known only to faith is the fact that the babe in the manger is the all-powerful creator of the world. Known only to faith is the fact that this one who is destined to hang bloody on the tree of the cross is in fact hanging there on his throne of glory. Known only to faith is the fact that this one who now takes his flesh and blood from his mother feeds his bride, the church, that same flesh and blood under the common wrappings of bread and wine. Known only to faith is the fact that Mary had a little lamb for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Second sermon is based upon the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This text forms the basis of this sermon that we'll be be listening to from Pastor Brent Kuhlman, entitled, Emmanuel, God with us. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, isn't this something? (laughs) It really is. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Many would call it ridiculous, absolutely, utterly, entirely impossible, downright absurd. After all, the last place in the universe... You or I would go looking for God is the baby that sleeps in the lap of the virgin or the baby that nurses at her breast or the baby who belches, passes gas, and dirties his diaper. Reverend, are you contending that the little baby Mary holds in her arms is where you find God? That God is located in that baby? Is that what you're saying, Reverend? Yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. What's that? You have another question? Go ahead, I'm game. Uh, Reverend, are you asserting that this little baby is God himself? Yep, absolutely, without a doubt. In fact, let me really be audacious. There is no other God than this baby or man, Jesus the Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. Don't be shy. Go ahead and say it. I won't be offended. Good grief. I've been a pastor a long time, and so nothing surprises me anymore. All right, Reverend. Now, don't get us wrong. We're not trying to be irreligious or anything like that. Don't misunderstand us. We're quite pious, and we take God very seriously. But, Reverend, God's not supposed to act like that, is he? God's not allowed to do that, is he? 
After all, in our world and in our way of thinking, God wouldn't be God if he comes out of the birth canal of a woman, bears the flesh of a baby, drools, spits, cries, and, well, poops his pants. I hear you, and I sympathize. What you say does make sense. It's very reasonable. However, God does what he does. I'm not in control, and neither are you. Matthew records it as it happened. Precisely according to the prophecy of Old Testament Isaiah. Listen again. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There you have it. God is with us. Where? In the physical body. The physical body of the baby Jesus born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, the baby Jesus is God himself. That is where God is. Baby Jesus is God with us. Again, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is with us to do something for us. I'd better say that again. He is with us in order to do something for us. And what in the wide world of sports would baby God Emmanuel dare do for us, lost, deadbeat, low-life sinner? Well, if you thought God's taking on flesh, burping, farting, or filling his diapers was dicey, you haven't heard anything yet. Because Emmanuel does even more than that. He grows up. He grows up. And he does a Good Friday. A good Friday? What's that, Reverend? Really? You don't know what a good Friday is? Or put better, the good Friday? I'll tell you. It's when Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, was beaten to a bloody pulp. Most likely beyond recognition. Blow after blow. Punch after punch. Flogged so severely that large chunks of his flesh were ripped from his upper and lower back. And then he was brutally nailed and hung on the cross between two criminals. But there's even more. Yes, there's even more than that. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, does a Good Friday by, now listen carefully, by actually taking all your sin in his body and claiming it as his own. Numbered with the transgressors, The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, is how Old Testament prophet Isaiah preached the Good Friday before it ever happened. Yes, on the cross, brothers and sisters, as Jesus bodily bears and carries all your sin, he is counted as the sinner, maximum sinner, as I've been preaching. St. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, he, namely Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. God would do that? Yes, he would. And so, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is a curse, Galatians 3.13, with all the sin of the world in his body. That is to say, he's damned with all of it. And all this he does as Emmanuel, God with us, in order to save us. I beg you, don't you dare try to protect Jesus from bodily taking your sin and putting all of it on himself on the cross. Don't try and take it away from him, because that's spiritually disastrous. Your salvation is at stake with Jesus being God 
and Jesus doing a Good Friday suffering and dying. I tell you why this is so important. Here's why. If Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, does not take your sin, then your sins are where? And ask it again. If Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, does not take your sins, then where are your sins? Then they're still on you. And if your sin remains on you, then you will die with it, and you'll get damned with it. That's what's at stake. But I'm here to tell you that Emmanuel Jesus did take your sin, all of it. Your sins do not belong to you anymore. Did you hear me? I said your sins don't belong to you anymore. They're his. He answered for them. He atoned for them with the shedding of his divine blood. And with his divine blood, he appeased God's wrath against you and all your sin. That's good Friday. Jesus is indeed God with you, to be for you, for your salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Have a happy Christmas. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Our final Christmas sermon is from Pastor Jeremy Rohde. He'll be preaching on the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde in his Christmas sermon entitled, The Meaning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In John's Gospel, the more, familiar, the more familiar elements of the Christmas story have been stripped away. We find no singing angels, no shepherds, and no manger. Instead, we're given a glimpse into the immense and foreign mystery of the Logos, the Word. The whole cosmos, all of what we call time and space, is in view as John takes us back to the first words of Scripture and the dawn of creation. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, John writes. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It is this Word that becomes flesh to dwell with us. So what we are celebrating at Christmas is not a nostalgic story come to a close. What we are celebrating at Christmas is not the conclusion of a heartwarming season. What we are celebrating at Christmas is not the birth of a great man who happened to change history. There are many such men. Rather, John teaches us the essence of Christmas. The Word who was with God, who is God, has become flesh. 
And if you think you understand this, then you really haven't begun to understand it at all. There's nothing more profound, nothing more full of mystery and wonder than God becoming man. In awe, Isaiah simply says, His name is wonderful. Yahweh, wrapping Himself in human DNA. He is called Emmanuel, for He is God with us. He is called Jesus, for He has come to save us from our sins. There is nothing else like Him in all creation. What we are celebrating at Christmas is the mystery of God's incarnation. Or as John puts it, the Word became flesh. Halagos sarks agenata. What John calls the Word also means in Greek the meaning. It would be just as valid for us to translate John's Greek this way. The meaning became flesh. What if the meaning did not become flesh? Without meaning, flesh is meaningless. This is Solomon's great insight. The all is vanity. The all is meaningless. Human life is meaningless. There's no meaning to your life individually. There's no meaning to human life corporately. Flesh is meaningless. What is your life, the Scriptures ask? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Were you wise or foolish? Doesn't much matter. You're a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. Did you have more good times than bad? Did you do great things or accomplish little? Did you lay down your life in service to others? Did you give your whole life in pursuit of God? Doesn't much matter. You're but a mist that's soon to vanish from this world forever. In a few generations or less, all that you've done will be forgotten, along with your name, and anyone else who remembers you. The life of mortals is like grass, the Scriptures say. We flourish like flowers in the field. The wind blows, and we're gone. Our place remembers us no more. This isn't empty poetry or philosophy or even theological proposition. It's simply reality, available to any person honest enough to see it for what it is. So uncomfortable is this reality, we human beings can stand very little of it. In fact, we'd rather not think about it at all. So we fill our minds and our lives with as much fun as we can, with distractions, with busyness, with information overload, handheld devices, shopping, work, alcohol and drugs, prescription, pornography, philanthropy, religion. We do just about anything, use whatever toys and diversions we can to keep ourselves comfortably numb, to keep ourselves from seeing reality as it is, that all are from the dust and to dust all return. Doesn't matter how much you accumulate, how many Christmas presents you get, 
Naked we come into this world, naked we leave it. Whether one lives wisely or foolishly, morally or immorally, is a good person or bad, the same comes upon us all. And in final analysis, God remains quite silent. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? The psalmist asks. God, like nature, doesn't seem to give a damn. What is it to be human, to be flesh? The existence of flesh is meaningless. And that is why John's words are so critical. The meaning has become flesh. The meaning of human life, the meaning of your life, the meaning has become flesh. This means that the meaning of life is not an abstract thought or an idea or a philosophy. The meaning of life is a person. The meaning of your individual life, your purpose, the reason for your existence is a person. The person who is God in human flesh. God with you. God for you. God saving you. Emmanuel. Jesus. For all things were made through Him and for Him, including you. This is one of the Apostle Paul's great insights. You are not only made through Him, you are also made for Him. Which means that only in relationship to Him does your existence have meaning. Only in relationship to Him will you find meaning and purpose in your own life the possibility of meaning and purpose in all things. Apart from Him, nothing has meaning. To borrow again from Solomon, under the sun, the S-U-N, is a world that is meaningless, period. But under the sun, the S-O-N, is an entirely new and different world, full of meaning. What this means is that you are not your own. You are not your own, the Scriptures say, for you were bought at a price, bought with the blood of the child born of Mary, the man who says, Behold, I am making all things new. On your own, you are not new. On your own, you belong only to the old and meaningless world. Your life but a brief vapor, and meaningless mixture of joy and pain that amounts to nothing in the end. On your own, you have the fleeting pleasures of this world, along with the hurts which you've caused others, the hurts you've received, sin and its consequences. On your own, there's nothing for us but to attempt to justify our very existences, the existences of one another. That's what most eulogies are. On your own, you'll try to make sense of this world and die before you do. That's how it is on your own. But the message of John, the Christmas Gospel, is that you are not on your own. 
The Word has become flesh. The Logos, the meaning. All things have meaning through Him, including you. And He has made you His own, purchasing you with His own divine blood. The meaning does not have life. He is life. And if He is your life, then your life is not a mist that passes. Your life is eternal, for He is eternal. And where He is, you will be also. The meaning has become flesh, for only in flesh can He take upon Himself the hurt that you've caused and the hurt that you've received, sin and its consequences. He becomes sin for us, so that on His cross, in His flesh, your sins are atoned for and taken away. By taking the sins of your body into His own body, He gives you back your body. By taking the sins of your mouth into His own holy mouth, He gives you back your mouth. By taking the sins of your mind into His own sinless mind, He gives you back your mind. All this so that your thoughts, your words, your deeds are cleansed and made new, given meaning and purpose through Him. For through Him, our good deeds follow us, the Scriptures say, into the new heavens and the new earth. What we do in this life echoes for eternity. For our lives are now joined to the One who is life and eternity. What value God has given your earthly life, bowing His own divine head in death, to give your life back to you even now. A son He is that sets and falls into the grave a sun that rises bright and brilliant on Easter morn, the life and light of men. Sin is the servant of meaninglessness. Sin gives us no God and no good, but only that which a person dreams up in his own head, the Stalins and Hitlers included, the meaning they create. Sin destroys the family that God has ordered and renders it meaningless. Sin rips apart human life in war and abortion and neglect and hate, rendering human life itself meaningless. Adultery tears up vows and hearts and empties the word love of its meaning. Theft renders ownership and hard work meaningless. A few words destroy a person's reputation and make a person meaningless in the eyes of others. Greed renders the blessings of God He's already given meaningless. Sin is the servant of meaninglessness. And so, when the meaning becomes flesh, it falls on Him to undo sin. He was delivered into death for our sins, the Scriptures say and was raised to life for our justification. When He rises from the dead in His flesh on Easter morning, the meaning who has become flesh remains flesh, so that by Him your flesh and life, all human flesh and life, 
is justified. This means that your existence and the value of your life aren't conditional, aren't determined on the basis of your performance, who you are and what you do. Rather, your existence and the value of your life are determined by Christ and His performance, who He is and what He's done. Purchased by His blood, your existence and your life have unconditional value. For the meaning has become flesh to die and rise and thereby justify you in your flesh. Through divine forgiveness, He gives you back a loving God and a perfect good. He gives value back to all human flesh and life. He gives you back your word and your vows. He gives you treasure that thieves cannot steal. He gives you reputation in His sight. He gives you back the blessings you already have and more. For sin that would otherwise render our lives meaningless, He has taken away. Everyone from philosophers to writers of Disney movies tell us that meaning is ours to create. But they have it exactly backwards. The meaning is not left for us to create. Rather, the meaning has created you and all things. And the meaning has redeemed you and all things. So John leaves out the singing angels, the searching shepherds, and the humble manger in order to tell us something profound. That meaning has now invaded our meaningless world. Meaning has become flesh. And now meaning addresses you personally. He knows you. And He calls you by name. He is a word. A word that has come from outside of time and space into your life. A word from God to you. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he writes, Now in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Where Jesus is, there is God's Word to you. Where Jesus is, there is meaning and purpose and love and forgiveness that embrace you now and for all eternity. It is a personal encounter and different for each one of us. And it takes on the contours of your own life. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Where He has called you, there He meets you. The meaning addresses each person individually and uniquely. And yet He comes to us all in the very same ways. He is the Word that comes to us where He is preached setting captives free. He is the Word that comes to us in the water of baptism, making us new. He is the Word that gives to us His flesh and blood to eat and drink, making us one with Him. All as if to say to you, Here I am. I am your all. I am your everything. I am the Word from God to you. I am the meaning you seek, now become flesh 
so that you who are in flesh might have meaning and me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what did you think? See the difference? Big difference. Huge difference. The difference between night and day. Substance and nothing. Truth and error. You heard lots of truth in these sermons. But in the sermons we've been reviewing for the past few weeks from evangelicals around the world, preaching on these texts, we haven't heard the truth and we haven't heard Christ. And that's absolutely tragic. And I hope that helps kind of make the point. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, the last one for the year 2015. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Till next year, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Merry Christmas.